Hi there, and welcome to the show that's all about celebrating all the shapes, sizes, and colors of diversity as well as adversity, and seeks to inspire the world through authentic conversations that are both meaningful and relatable. Each episode, I deep dive into the extraordinary journey of an average yet super incredible person in the diversity space. We talk about everything from their personal accomplishments and or contributions to social impact to some of the adversity they've had to face along the way and the resiliency and tenacity that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Tisha Gillespie, and this is Not Your Average Goat. This week, I sit down with my friend, Madeline, who also happens to be the creator of the Not Your Average Goat logo. We talk about her long journey with overcoming shame, especially as it relates to her Bolivian and Honduran roots and the impact that her Mormon upbringing, wifery grooming, and unrealistic expectations as a first-generation Hispanic had on her. Then we dive into her super painful, 12-year journey with two hormonal conditions, including endometriosis, and her experience going undiagnosed and mistreated for over a decade and the huge pitfall that exists in our medical system today, especially as it relates to women's conditions getting a lack of care, especially when it comes to male doctors. And throughout this entire conversation, we talk about how Madeline exemplifies how important it is to think for yourself and challenge commonly accepted philosophies and how powerful therapy, especially culturally competent therapy, can have in ridding shame and helping you work through so many issues that were out of your control throughout your childhood. I am so excited for you to hear Madeline's story. So let's get started. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. It's actually a beautiful like 75 degree day here. Yeah, over here in Texas, it's about like 100 degrees. That's crazy. Well, definitely keep sunscreened up for sure. As many people know, Not Your Average Good is a pretty new podcast. And with new podcasts, you need branding. And that's not really my expertise at all. So I reached out to you and you so kindly offered to help me with my logo um, and just, you know, some of the script and, and, and really kind of help put that like brand narrative together, which I was so thankful for. So, um, you know, thank you so much. And everyone can see the logo. It's on all the social media sites, um, on the website. What do you love most about being in this field? Um, I would probably say just the creativity with it has been Mm -hmm. super fun and like working with a lot of people. Um, you know, I get to work with like a ton of departments, um, and help every single one. And I feel like it's in my nature to just want to help people and, and, and make them happy. And so like, I get to do that all the time, just in a creative way and like use my, my expertise with it. So it, it is a lot of fun to do. So cool. And something I love that you have on your LinkedIn is like your tagline is designing with empathy, which I thought was just so awesome. What does that mean to you? It's really getting the people's needs 
and making them happy and like figuring out what they need first and and their pain points and and making sure like we can come up with a solution that's okay for them um but yeah no I mean I try to think not just design wise but anything with empathy I think I think the world needs a little more empathy and um you know me being able to design with empathy and use my expertise with it and just to make sure that everyone is okay around me it's just a really cool feeling one thing I love to do with everyone because I think it's so interesting to kind of take a step back is to go back in time a bit and find out who you were around eight, nine, 10 years old. What were your passions? How was your personality different from today? I was pretty creative early on. Uh, I started cooking at a really young age, probably about four. So, and I watched like a ton of Food Network too. <laughs> I would like make my mom take me to the grocery store and like buy ingredients. So I could make everyone dinner that night. So <laughs> That's so fun. Yeah, always into cooking. I still am. Um, and then really into art too. Like, you know, I was usually drawing or either if I wasn't drawing or cooking, I was probably outside playing um, or riding my bike. But I was just yeah, like a really active kid. I actually had a baking book that I would love to like make cookies and cakes oh, from. Yeah. I don't do that a lot today. I actually, like, I wish I had time to do it because I, I miss doing it. And now there's just so many, I, I think so many innovative recipes and just like healthier ways too of baking. Cause of course, like when you're a kid, you don't really care about all the sugar and stuff like that. And then also just, I, until I was about maybe nine or 10, I was a very outdoorsy kid, like loved playing cook, kickball, loved riding my bike, um, just like playing tag with all the kids in the neighborhood. And then I just got to a point where I just like did not go outside. And maybe it was like, just like the normal teenage girl thing to do. I don't know. Um, but I just like would end up like staying indoors, like all summer, just reading. Um, and like, I remember having to be like forced to go outside, like even to just like sit on the blanket to get sunlight when I was a teenager. <laughs> but cool. yeah, I definitely wish I was a little bit more kind of like kid-like and um, like I like thankfully I have the two dogs so they get me outside multiple times a day for a walk but um, I don't remember the last time I rode a bike or played kickball <laughs> good times though um, but you actually grew up in a military family and you moved around a lot you were actually born in Germany like what was that experience like for you well, it's funny. Anytime I tell someone I'm born in Germany, they, there's like two questions. They're like, oh, tell me your favorite part. And then do you speak German? And I was only there for like maybe less than two years. <laughs> I don't even remember it. It's just like, it's more of a burden than anything. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's actually like the, a lame story because it's like, I don't remember anything. My brother remembers more of it because he was about four um and then yeah so my my first uh, native language is was Spanish and English so yeah, no German <laughs> that's so funny and um do you ever have you been to Germany since you left as a like I guess as a toddler at that point right yeah no I haven't been back um and it's funny because I was told to go back before I turned 18 to get dual citizenship and at the time mm. as a teenager I'm like why why does that matter and like you know I like didn't care about it now I'm like oh like that would have been so cool <laughs> that would have been so cool yeah but then you also like spent a ton of time in California in Kansas and like oh, yeah. Virginia and now you're in Texas like what was your favorite you, like what was your favorite place to live I remember Southern California being my favorite as a kid uh we lived in two different cities in California so I had to move twice mm -hmm. um but the first 
place we were in was Tustin, California. I remember being very, very close to family, like a lot of extended cousins and aunts and uncles. We were still close when we moved to Seal Beach, but we lived on base in Seal Beach. And it was about maybe a mile, two miles away from the beach. So we used to go there every weekend. We were, um, my elementary school that I went to, I'd walk to, and it was always a beautiful day. And that was when we had a park right next to our house. So I was always outside. But yeah, no, Southern California was beautiful. We we did, we tried to do everything there. And so a lot of my fun memories were definitely there. Then after about seven years of that, I moved to Kansas, which is like landlocked. I uh, wasn't used to it, the, the non-diversity. So it was like a huge uh, culture shock for me. <laughs> and... It, it was just so different. Like there wasn't as much things to do. Um, there wasn't a lot to see. Kansas is very flat. Like I'm pretty sure they they proved scientifically it's flatter than a pancake. So like, <laughs> the, like those are like the cool things about Kansas. <laughs> That's too funny. And you were there from like 11 to 15 or sorry, 11 to 16. So like primary years like where you want to be out like actually doing things as a teenager and yeah what to do (laughs) and we were talking about how like I was always outside you know when we moved to Kansas I became totally like an inside kid I didn't even want to go out there I was like super depressed my first year I was like this I had yeah and then and then we moved during like summer vacation normally so it's like a whole summer vacation alone and then you go to school and it's like, you're already in eighth grade. People already know each other. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like you're, you're fighting like to, to try to see someone that like doesn't believe in clicks. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I remember, yeah, that first year was really tough in high school. Um, but I did end up making like a pretty solid friend group in high school. Um, the unfortunate thing was I had to move again my junior year of high Ooh. school. Yeah. And so we had seen it coming. Um, My dad had to uh, move my sophomore year and he tried to extend it to where we could stay through so I could graduate with all my friends. Um, So he sacrificed and went over to Virginia first for a whole year um, out in West Springfield. And he was there. We were over here. I was doing my, my sophomore year. My mom was still working. My brother was already in college. And it was a really hard year on everyone just because uh, the toll that I saw it took on my mom being away from my dad for so long and and vice versa. You know, I'm sure my dad was suffering, too. We didn't get to see him maybe like once every three months he would try to come visit because he was also busy working. And so but we were we we've been used to it before being away from him because there'd be years where he would have to go to training and he'd be gone six months out of the year, nine months out of the year. And it was just me, my mom and my brother. But for some reason, it, it hadn't been the, um, a while since he did it. And so doing it, I guess, when we were all adults is a bit harder. And so my junior year had came and I had finished it. And my parents asked me if I wanted to still stay. And I was like, there's no way we can stay. Like I saw what it was doing to my mom. And I was just like, if if I don't make the decision to finish high school in Virginia, who knows what's going to happen to my family? Like it, long distance relationships are tough. <laughs> and I was like two years of it when you're already an established family. It, it's, it's, it was just rough to see. 
So I told him, I was like, no, let's just go. Let's all go to Virginia. I'll finish my high school there. Don't worry about me. But when I was going to school in West Springfield, I ended up finding like two of my best friends that I have, you know, still today. <laughs> so, so awesome. Yeah. You know, if I, if I didn't move, I would have never found them. And um, it was a little tough. I, I will say going in senior year to a brand new high school, especially because my Kansas one, the graduating class was about 200. It's a small school. And then my my West Springfield one, I think was like a thousand or like a 1500 or something. I was not used to the amount of people around me, how big the school was. I was <laughs> it was like a whole different thing for me. But um, But, you know, we made it. I can definitely thank my best friends for for getting me through that last year. Well, you've already hinted at this a bit, but your parents are not U.S. native. So your father's Bolivian and your mother's from Honduras. What kind of values did they instill in you being Latina, Latino, um, kind of growing up? Were there any specific things that they taught you from their cultures? Oh, man, I will say growing up in America with, uh, you know, immigrant parents, it's very different because you're trying to be like all the normal kids, and kind of like, you know, hang out with everyone, do your own thing, sleepovers and all that stuff. And that just like wasn't a thing. That wasn't a thing for us. You know, I, I wasn't necessarily allowed to to go out with certain people. If I were to hang out with certain people, it would have to be, you know, they would have to know their whole entire family, everything that they did. Like it was very protective. <laughs> and so there was definitely that um, sort of in the back of my head anytime I met someone I'm like okay like are my parents gonna like you I don't know like <laughs> yeah you know it was very like that I had to think that way would I necessarily agree with it today probably not because it was a bit it was a bit strict at times but yeah no I, I mean other than that it was very always family first family forward no matter what and I definitely got to learn a lot of my great cooking too from <laughs> from knowing my roots so <laughs> Mm. Do you have a favorite like Bolivian or Honduran dish that you like to cook? Uh, Saltanas are a huge Bolivian staple and they mm. are delicious. It's uh, if you've ever had an empanada, yes. it's very similar concept where it's like a bread and then there's stuffing inside. So a saltania is bigger and the dough is a bit different. It's, it's like um, sweet, but everything inside it's hearty. So like, uh, it's like almost like a chicken pot pie kind of in there, but you can get chicken, you can get beef, you can get pork, but there's like potatoes and egg and peas and like this delicious broth in there that's just marinating. That's the best Bolivian dish I can I can tell you. Mm, that sounds so good. I'm like ready to <laughs> I'm ready to eat right now. <laughs> I can definitely relate though with having like very strict rules in terms of like friends and like what you can do. My my parents, or at least my mother, was a lot like that as well. We usually, like, if we wanted to have sleepovers, like, usually the kids had to come over to our house. Like, we weren't allowed to go over to their house very often, unless, yeah. like, my mother was, like, really, really good friends with their parents. Um, and then, like, even just going out to, like, to the mall, to the movies, like, she always had to know, like, who we were with, 
what movie we were going to see, when we were going to get back, um, and just like all of these things, which I mean, I guess for certain kids, it makes sense to ask all these questions and be super strict because some kids will like try to do whatever they can and like sneak anything under your nose. But um, like she was just, you know, like very strict. So I can definitely relate with that. And it was definitely like very tough trying to have the social life sometimes and like trying to fit in and have friends because like people would make plans to go do something and I couldn't always participate. Um, so definitely like really tough, especially like when you got to like junior high, high school type of years. Oh, it was rough in high school being under like that kind of surveillance. I remember one time, this was the only time I snuck out. <laughs> uh, my friends my best friends from high school they invited me they were like we're gonna watch a horror movie come over to the house like six of us there and I'm like oh that sounds like so much fun so I'm right I'm like let me ask my mom this was when my dad was in Virginia so it was just me my mom and my brother and so she said no and I was like so bummed out and then my friends were like oh man that sucks you know and I'm like yeah and then I was like hold on a second <laughs> let me see if I can swing something I had orchestrated me sneaking out and then someone driving over there and picking me up because they had lived 10 minutes away I did it definitely got caught I was not smooth with it at all my mom was already there awake so <laughs> it was not a great outcome but I did have fun watching the the scary movies with my friends that's too funny I love it <laughs> yeah but it only happened one time so you know <laughs> we live and learn but the, what's, what's funny is that they were still strict with me even as like an adult like I was living with them you know throughout college so um you know what I, I was like 2021 with a curfew <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah and then and then if I wasn't home man my mom would blow up my phone call me you know 10 times in a row and at that point I'm like you know what I'm just gonna try to have fun come home at midnight way past the curfew the curfew's like 10 t-shirt like <laughs> real wow <strange>. okay <laughs> yeah and so yeah yeah so I had to deal with that I would say that was probably the main reason why I moved out pretty early because <laughs> I felt just like I wasn't allowed to to kind of do my own thing Mm, yeah, I mean, that that's really, really tough. I imagine that like your parents growing up in these essentially like third world countries probably back then was like pretty tough and they encountered a lot of things like how did that impact them raising you and your brother in terms of like values and things like that? Yeah, I mean, th yeah, their childhoods were definitely rough, you know you know both of them didn't necessarily have come from money I remember my mom telling me that she kind of lived on a like a farm type thing my dad's family it was uh, him and his siblings his mom and then his dad who was you know not the greatest guy from what I've heard but yeah and then they ended up coming to America really young age I think my dad was here for high school in Southern California. And my mom came a bit later. She was about 21. Just from, from them living like a really humble life, like we tried to do that too and always be grateful for everything that we have. And to also work very, very hard because that's, I mean, that's essentially what they did when they came here and became citizens. They worked very, very hard to, to have a way better life for their kids um, than they ever did. So, and they definitely succeeded. <laughs> Hearing about your parents and the struggles they had and 
also just being able to finally make it over here to the States to have a better life and, you know, being told about how hard they worked. And I'm assuming you kind of felt pressured that you had to do the same, like you had to be straight A's, you had to like get this job and like just be kind of perfect in a way. Oh, yeah, no, totally. There was a lot of pressure. You know, I kind of felt like I couldn't complain about anything in my life. Mm -hmm. It was very stressful, too, because, you know, you have you have a parent that went through so much. And as their kid, like you want to make sure you make them super proud um, because you're representing them, you know, and they have already been through so much. Uh, So, yeah, you know, it was always really hardworking. Of course, they wanted like the straight A student. They wanted, you know, us to become doctors and lawyers and everything. So I remember like when I was 10, my dad would be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would tell me, I want to be like an artist or a chef. And he'd be like, no, (laughs) I don't think that's what you want. (laughs) And, And so, you know, they would always push like the be, be, you know, these glamorous jobs, be, you know, make a ton of money be you know established own your own business and all this stuff so it was just kind of like you reach for the stars but at the same time yeah those are great things but you know I kind of also want to do something I want to do you know at the end of the day it is my life so (laughs) um, I ended up taking the art route and you know I'm sure my parents were happy for me no matter what and but you know it wasn't (laughs) what they I've, I've heard them say a couple times oh yeah you know, she was so great at, at her, you know, debate class. She, uh, we could have sworn she was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> I I have other friends who grew up in kind of in, in different cultures, but similar values in terms of like they're being pressured to you know have certain grades, have a certain job, go to a certain college, um, like live a certain lifestyle and just a lot of conflicts and arguments about that, especially when the parents have like financial input into in, or investment into you, like whether they're paying for your college or supporting you afterwards. So definitely like a very, very tough thing to deal with, I imagine. Yeah, you definitely feel that way for sure. Like an investment. Yeah, no, that that's a really great way to put it. And you don't want to like, you don't want to screw the pooch and like ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the worst part for me in in high school, like in middle school and everything, like I wasn't like an overachiever academically at all. So like that was already off-putting for, for the family. My brother was, he was like straight A student. He was honor roll, everything. I totally was the opposite. I was just there. I was just trying to like get through math class. <laughs> I was just terrible at school. Like it just, I didn't want it to be, I would study very hard, but for some reason it's just like, I, I, whenever I had to take a test, everything would just go blank. And then when we would do those reviews, I'd be like, come on, like you knew that. I've always wondered how schools, especially public schools, can make alternatives to, uh, to like, um, traditional tests. Because I think that they make a lot of big accommodations and they find other ways of testing people's knowledge, like if you have a learning disability or a different disability, but they don't really take into account people who have anxiety. And for someone who also struggles with anxiety, um, you know, it can become very nerve wracking, especially like if you forget one, like if you're taking a test and you forget one answer, it kind of just like destroys you for the rest of the test. Like you're either like still trying to figure out that other answer and just being super anxious and then like starting to second guess like the rest of your answers as well. Um, and then just like test, like only providing one option to quote unquote test someone's knowledge 
like, I just don't think that that's fair, especially in today's society. Like there have to be other ways that people that you can test the knowledge just to figure out if someone actually understands the material. Totally. And it's funny, actually, I talked to my boyfriend quite a bit about this because he's uh, currently he's in school and he wants to become a history teacher. Mm. So and we talk about like, you know, different anxieties that happen in the classroom. So he actually he knows about my my test anxiety and we talked about it. He let me know. He reassured me that is a very real thing. I was like, yeah. oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been very interesting, interesting to see, like, you know, the way like they teach him to teach others and everything. So. So you and your parents clashed a lot when it came to the culture. Like they had, they had their culture that they grew up with. You were born in the States. So you were, you're essentially an American. Well, I mean, I know you were born in Germany, but you came here when you were a toddler. So you're an American. Um, but then also just moving around all the time, like it was really hard probably to create this like foundation because you didn't really have a true hometown. So when you finally moved to Kansas, like you mentioned, it was like a huge culture shock for you, just being very, very different from California. And I feel like at this point, you kind of had like this tipping point and we're almost kind of fighting with your culture yourself too, because, you know, like you mentioned or shared with me that there were some racism, like bullying, and you kind, you also kind of like lost your language in a way. Do, what do you remember about that time in Kansas? Yeah. So that was definitely my, my first year. I was in eighth grade you know, I was coming from California, so I was a lot darker, you know, because we used to be outside, I mean, all the time, every day. Um, I was also very, like, normal. It was normal for me to hear Spanish or to speak Spanish at the time, because, like, all my family that we saw lived in California, We they all spoke Spanish. It was, you know, that was just the norm. I come to Kansas, and I think the first day of school I had, or at least the first week, I remember my first memory is just being, being called a wetback you know, being called a beaner, saying, you know, go swim back to your country, where oh, I got, I got, where are you from a lot? Like, where's your family from? Because everyone was curious to just see. Um, I ended up telling, I was like, you know, I'm Bolivian, Honduran, I was born in Germany, like, you know, the whole thing. And then they'd just be like, oh, you're Mexican. <laughs> and I'm like, they, they, it's terrible that they use Mexican as an insult like that that's yeah. what was what was for me the whole time because that that is what they just think of uh just Latinos and Latinas everywhere you're just Mexican there's no nothing else to you um anything south of of the states is just all Mexico to their mind so it, it was a kind of slap to my face you know uh anytime they would uh talk about Spanish it was called Mexican so they'd be like, don't speak Mexican. Um, but yeah, no, it was just a lot of a lot of slurs thrown my way, a lot of racist jokes. And at the time, you know, I I don't know how to cope with it. So instead, the way I do it is try to use like joking comedy to like defer it away from me. And that's that's primarily what I did. Because, you know, it was mostly male students doing it to me. So that was already like terrifying for me. I was like, oh, man, these guys are like, they're like twice my size, you know, telling me to swim back to my country. And I'm like, I'm already here. So, you know, you hear that from kids. The next thing you think of is like, how are their parents? You know, um, I, you know, they're, they're probably teaching them these things. They're probably much worse. 
who knows how far they would go and you know how justified they think they will be in doing it because this is just like this is their norm um to speak this way so I try to keep my head down and then just like you know if someone says something to me just laugh it off and continue continue going and that was that was pretty much my introduction to Kansas to Kansas people did that make you feel kind of embarrassed to be or like ashamed to be Hispanic at that time? Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, I mean, it was a bit traumatizing, honestly. There was, yeah, there was a point in my life, you know, probably about freshman year of high school where I was like, you know what? Uh, because it was really that that one year in middle school where it all happened all at once. Um, and so in freshman year, I was like, I'm not even going <laughs> to say anything about where I'm from, where my family's from. I didn't even want to know Spanish. Like I, I pretty much, yeah, I wanted to give up everything right then and there. I was like, I didn't want to have my culture anymore. It, it was just so much. And so I pretty much forced myself to forget everything. Um, that's when I stayed inside pretty much the whole summer. So um, a lot of my bloodlines from Spain. So we're, we're already light skinned. Uh, so when I stayed inside, my, my tan went away. Yeah, no, it was a lot. And then in middle school, I think it was my, yeah, my freshman year. So that year I came back, I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to let this um, kind of stop me. We're just going to keep going. I'm just going to recreate myself. Basically, they're not going to be able to touch me. And um, it was that year when I had got beaten up, like at a football game. It was my, I was watching my brother play football every, I think it was like every Friday. Um, and I had a lot of friends in the band. So I used to go sit in the band section. And then when it was halftime, they would have to go do their band thing. And then they would come back, we would hang out. So it was halftime, they went to go do their band thing. I was like, I'm gonna go grab a snack from the uh, concession stands. And they had like this alleyway that the only students went through. It wasn't like, uh, not many people went through. So as I was saying, I was going through the alleyway, I was gonna grab a snack while my friends were playing um, out for halftime. Next thing I know, I think someone had jumped on my back. Somehow they took me down. I was on the floor very quickly. And I just hear, you know, like, go back to your country. You know, they're kicking me. It, it was it was really like a blur. I remember they, they then they left. I knew one of the voices for sure. And so I had gone back up. I was like, had a huge amount of adrenaline. Like, I couldn't really feel anything. And I remember just going back, waiting for my friends to come back because they had, they were almost done. Uh, they had found me and they were like, what the heck happened? Um, and I kind of told them, I was like, I don't know, but they, they said this, I got, you know, I've got hit here. I'm crying. My face is all puffy. Um, and so we go to try to find the police officer. There's usually um, a police that, that goes to the school um and he's usually there at the game so we go look for him and we find him we tell him what happened hey you know this this kid I'm pretty sure it's this kid that hit me um this is what happened like these are the hit marks he didn't really do anything he did find the kid um the kid was just kind of like I don't know what happened I guess he he was like well there's not much I can do type of situation so he just like he didn't do anything. He didn't even contact my parents. Like that's, that's how, how <laughs> uh, much care went into this. So um, yeah, that, that was pretty much the end of that night. Um, I had told my brother the next morning because he was out in the field playing and I didn't want to bother him. Um, 
but I just remember not being helped by the police officer at all. And I'm not sure why. Um, my brother was obviously very upset. So he, from that day on, he made sure to keep like a very, very close watch the rest of the year on me. There was an occasion the sophomore year, the next year after this incident, I was in a chemistry class and I sat down. The next person I see walking through the door is the person that had hit me during that football game. And I was like petrified when I saw him and he had sat right next to me and I like did not know what to do. I didn't end up telling my chemistry teacher until about, I think like three months into chemistry. And I was like, I can't do this. Like I'm way too anxious. Like I can't do it anymore. So I go to her and I'm like, Hey, I'm letting you know, like this happened last year. Um, This is the dude that did it. And I'm sitting right next to him. So I need to move my chair. So she moved my chair but then didn't do anything else after that. I, like, didn't um, question it, didn't talk to him, didn't, like, tell the principal. So, like, this incident just kind of went unheard, and that that's all I remember from that. But I just remember it being racially charged at the time because of what they were saying during the, when they were pretty much beating me up. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it just felt like no one cared. I'm really glad you had your brother, like an older sibling there to kind of look after you after that event. But I'm really sorry that that even had to happen in the first place. Yeah, it was really rough. And like, um, it was definitely nice having my brother. My brother's, um, his name is Kevin. There was a, we shared the same lunch. And after that, like someone had like thrown a kit during our lunch period. I'm not sure if it was towards me, but it ended up hitting my head. And that was the part that set Kevin off. So like literally after lunch, she like grabbed him, like put him against the the lockers. He was just like, don't you ever touch my sister again, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, <laughs> so he was like, really like, he got really protective of me. Like, after, especially after the incident where like he did, he was more upset that I didn't tell him right away. And I, I was there like, I didn't want to bother you. Like you're in your game, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, no, after that, he was very, like, very, very close. We got very close together. So after Kansas, you guys moved to Virginia and you're a senior in high school. And this is kind of a time where you feel like you actually want to reclaim your culture and you join a Bolivian dance group um, to try to do that. Like, what do you remember about that experience and kind of like what triggered you and like that desire to really get back to your cultural roots? Yeah, well, so I remember after we moved away from Kansas and I came to Virginia, I realized that not everything is like Kansas. And there's like so much more diversity here, you know, at the DMV. And um, it was just completely different. You know, no one cared about, you know, you speaking a different language or you coming from where you're from. Everyone is so welcoming that they're just like, yeah, just like tell us a little more about it. You know, it was totally opposite from what I was used to. And at that time, I was like, well, now I feel almost like whitewashed because, you know, I kind of gave up all that stuff so I could fit in there. And now I'm over here where people actually care about your culture. So it was kind of like eye opening for me where I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is important. Like I do need to know about this stuff and know about, you know, where my family comes from and the countries and everything. Um, I remember uh, when we were in California, I had a lot of um, older cousins that were doing the same Bolivian uh, dance group. It's called Caporales. And um, 
my other cousin came to visit us in Virginia and she, you know, she wanted to try out for the group and she told me to come and I was like, okay, yeah, like, let's do it. That sounds like fun. And I ended up falling in love with it. It was like so much fun. It was very empowering. Um, I got to be around people that were also from Bolivia. Uh, everyone spoke Spanish and English. So I got to really um, get, get the language back again um, and just be more comfortable speaking it and everything, which was really nice. And then we did competitions and, you know, parades and things. So it was a lot of fun. And yeah, you know, I still have like my dancing outfits. They definitely don't fit anymore. But <laughs> I still have them as like, you know, a really great memory um, and where I got to learn something new. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it was awesome. I loved it. Hi, my wonderful goat friends. Firstly, thank you so much for your support and listening. If you're enjoying this conversation and other episodes of the podcast, I'd like to ask you to please give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or whichever platform you are listening on right now. And if you're so inclined, we'd love to hear your feedback in a full review. Also, might be a great idea to hit subscribe on that platform you're listening to right now so you can get notified of new episodes as they are released. Thank you so much again for being one of our loyal GOAT listeners. You were raised Mormon for the majority of your childhood. Was that something that your parents each brought from their home countries or how did they actually become Mormon? Yeah, so I was actually trying to figure this out too because I know it comes from my mom's side because her her uh, siblings are also Mormon or at least her definitely her brother is. Um, so I knew it came from my mom's side because originally we were Catholics uh, from my dad's side. I know I was baptized Catholic and then I was baptized Mormon later on when I was about eight. But from what I kind of deducted was because Mormons will send out missionaries to different countries and they'll kind of like preach the religion there and like set up actual churches and everything. So I think that's how it happened. I think that's why my mom's side is Mormon, probably through missionaries going over there and kind of preaching the Mormon word. Being raised Mormon, I mean, the Mormon religion, it was a little bit of, well, maybe a big struggle for you, some of the teachings and philosophies that they had. What do you remember most about things that you struggled with either just grasping or being able to really identify with as it came to like, like values and things like that? Sure. Well, so I know when I was like a kid, we're like child. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, man, this is really strict. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, I remember there, there's like a lot of rules that they kind of set and not necessarily would you find these in like a Christian church? Like I'm pretty sure they're, they're specifically for the Mormon church. It was like down to appearance. It was down to what you consume, uh, in your body and through your ears. So it was like, um, dress wear you weren't allowed to expose anything above the knee anything above the um like the shoulders um so it was very modest uh there's kind of like a purity culture that's kind of just shoved down your throat at a very young age so you know I was definitely taught to dress modest anything else I mean you're considered 
essentially a bad person. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, no tattoos or else you're really looked down upon. Um, If you were, I mean, they're probably judging people with like colored hair. That's a natural colored. I remember that that just it was very judgy about how you looked. I remember that from a very young age. Secondly, you weren't allowed to consume certain things. So like caffeine, like coffee, you weren't allowed to consume it. I don't necessarily know why to this day. I just know it was one of the rules. Um, You weren't allowed to do anything on Sunday except essentially worship God. You weren't allowed to spend money that day. You pretty much had to go to, to church and then go back home and then just like continue the worship of God. I'm pretty sure music wise, you had to listen to music that was very preachy, very gospel. Uh, I think Christian rock was like, okay, but I, you know, most of the music that I listened to growing up, you know, rap music or like, you know, heavy uh, metal music, like I'm pretty sure that would have been scrutinized too. (laughs) if Someone (laughs) found out, (laughs) but I just remember, yeah, being very judged. I had to uphold this appearance from a very early age I just remember that as a kid like man like I feel like I have to live to these standards type of thing then when I got older as more probably teenish um I started noticing that no one that went to that church uh at least in our hour the the it was separated there was a morning service and then there was like a later in the morning service the one that we went to it was all white people like I, I just remember that when I was reminiscing about my Mormon times, I was like, I don't remember seeing one person of color. Now we were very light skinned. So we, we passed. So I just remember that and thinking how weird it was that the first service was all Hispanic people separated from the white people. I always thought that was very weird. Yeah. To this day, like I said, I could not tell you why they do it other than, you know, they might be racist. (laughs) But I just remember that being very weird to me. Um, I know that they 100%, it was very like, if you're, if you're gay or even think about it, I mean, you're, you're completely scrutinized for sure. And they're probably going to tell you something's wrong with you um, or for you to think about it a little more or to pray to God to it. Um, it. There's a lot of shame, I would say, that in this church that they try to put on you. They, they just tell you like, oh, just, just pray to God and like, you'll, you'll be fixed. No worries. But yeah, I started questioning things because, uh, you know, you weren't allowed to talk about sex or sexuality, really anything. There'd be times where I'm like, why, why do we have to dress like this? And they'd be like, oh, well, because that's what God intended. Like, that's what, that's how God likes it. <laughs> but I'm like, well, that doesn't really answer my question though. <laughs> yeah. So- I would just start questioning things and then they, I would never get an answer. And so, you know, when I became about 14, 15, I was just kind of fed up with it. I'm like, I, I feel like I'm blindly following something. It feels weird. You know, I feel shame anytime I do something type of thing. I mean, you weren't even allowed to curse. Like it was um, just very, just felt very strict and I felt very ashamed of myself and I didn't want to feel that way. And so when I was 15, um, I ended up taking a religions class because I kind of wanted to explore and see what other people believe. And so um, it was a really cool class. We, we actually got to take field trips to all the different um, churches. So we went to a mosque, we went to a Catholic church, we went to a synagogue, uh, we went to a Christian church. And I think that was it. And then we talked a bit about um, Buddhism. 
Um, but I just remember learning about, you know, all these different things, all these different religious cultures. And I was there kind of like, you know, everyone kind of does it their own way. That doesn't necessarily mean one way is true. Um, and so I just started becoming a bit more agnostic, I would say around that age, where I was like, you know, it's cool that everyone else believes, you know, in their own religion. I'm sure it brings comfort to most people. It just, it's not for me. It's kind of like how I decided it. It was fun learning about everything else though, you know, knowing that there's more than just like the Mormon church out there. So that that's pretty much how I came to the conclusion to being agnostic. I just like did a lot more research and kind of went on my own spiritual journey and then just kind of realized it's not, it's not really a comfort that I need. Unfortunately, I kind of got to this place myself just because of a lot of the very questionable things I saw happening within the religion called Christianity that I grew up with. And mm-hmm. a lot of things like regarding women, especially like holding men much higher and people, oh, yeah. people and leadership telling women that even if their husbands did something completely atrocious that they had to stay with them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as someone who's just, I've just always been very, very independent. And I was like, there's no way if I got married and my husband did something like that to me that I would stay with them. So I just, I, I couldn't understand how like this person, God, Jesus, whatever you want to call him or her, it could be a her too. I don't know. It has to be a him all the time, but anyway, um, like how they could allow this or basically not condone this type of behavior. And it just like made me very, very conflicted. So, yeah. And then just other things too. Like, I don't, I don't really want this conversation. I like, I feel like I go on for hours just about all yeah. the things that are so wrong with religions, but even just thinking about the celebrity preachers or whatever you want to call them, like all these people with millions of dollars, super mansions, like 10 cars. Oh, you're talking like Joel Olstein type. Exactly. People. I'm just oh, like, yeah. How, how is this how like based on your religion like not yours but just in general like their religion how is it okay for you to have these millions of dollars like and like all these cars a super nice house but how are the communities around you suffering like isn't that supposed to be like what you do that you serve you become a servant and you dedicate your time to like making the lives of those people around you better like I just I don't understand it at all you know, I remember growing up in the church, basically being told like my role as a woman, um, basically just to, to produce children, like, and that was the whole, that was your purpose. You have no other purpose except that. And so I remember uh, seeing a lot of families with like six plus kids. That was like the norm. And, and then like the wife would have to stay at home and like have no career while the man kind of like takes a hold of it. So I remember that being like kind of like the baseline of like what life is supposed to look like, which is totally untrue. I mean, it's very impressive. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, being groomed to basically say you're going to be, you're going to learn to cook. You're going to learn to clean. You're going to look, learn to look your best for your husband. And like, that's yeah. your only that's the only reason why you're here is to be there for a man. Like that's your man and your kids. And that's it. Like you're just, uh, you're just the metal man at this point. (laughs) Gosh, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't, I don't want to pass any judgment at all, but 
I can't imagine being a mother and having a daughter and, and telling her or supporting those type of values to basically right. say like, yeah, that's hard. I mean, how was that for you? I mean, when, when did you start being told these things? How, about how old were you? Uh, I remember, you know, learning how to cook and clean at a very young age. Um, I know like my mom would always make sure appearances were like put first. Like I was not allowed to leave the house unless I was like made up and done kind of thing. So, you know, growing up that way, it honestly, it put a little bit of self-consciousness in my life because it was more so like, okay, if I don't look this way, like no one's going to want me type of thing later on in life. Uh, if I don't do these things, then no one's going to want to want me either. Um, it was a lot of pressure, honestly. Like, it just felt like a lot of pressure to be a woman. So, <laughs> and I'm, like, very laid back. I'm chill. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to get, you know, all done up and ready every day. <laughs> uh, and that was, like, it brought shame again to me. And like that I didn't want to do, you know, I didn't want to wear high heels every day or I didn't want to put my, you know, do my hair every day or do my makeup every day. Um, and so it was just, yeah, I just remember it being a lot of pressure and just like to be this woman that, um, I guess not sure if society was trying to make me to be, or if my parents were trying to make me to be, you know, it took a while to outgrow that. Um, and it's something that I took into a lot of relationships too, like just like the I have to be this certain person I was never really myself in a lot of them um I have to be this perfect like housewife material to make this work essentially which is like totally not the right way to go about any relationship that's that's really really tough I was actually so I don't know if you've ever seen the show the marvelous Miss Measle I started watching it earlier this week, actually. And it's so sad because like, you know, one of the, the, well, multiple scenes within the series of the show, you see the wives get up at like four in the morning while their husbands are still sleeping to go do their makeup, like wash their face, do their makeup, curl their hair. And then like, like basically get, get themselves pretty to go back to bed so that when their husbands wake up, they look perfect. That's wild. It's so wild. And like, this is yeah. something that people were doing in the fifties and sixties. Like I really want to, I just start watching it. And like, I really want to see if my grandma remembers having to do that or not having to do it, but feeling like she had to do that back in the fifties, sixties. I was just like, no effing way. Like, so no way am I getting up at 4 a.m. to do my hair. I don't even wear makeup, honestly, um, to do my hair, to like get dressed. Um, No, no fucking way. No, not for anyone. (laughs) I can't say I haven't done that. Not 4 a.m., but like before they wake up and like make sure I look presentable. I can't say Mm. I haven't done that. And that was like, yeah, like thinking about it now, like that's so sad. Like, (laughs) You actually got married pretty young. You're about like what, 20 or 21 ish when you got married? I was about 21. Yeah. You know, do you think that pressure, do you think you were pressured to get 
married so young. I mean, cause 21 is like very, very young thinking about it. I don't, I couldn't imagine getting married at 21. And if you did get married, just having like a lot of challenges, especially because oh. I feel like at 21, you're still trying to like become your own person. So like, oh. what, what was that like for you? Yeah. I had no idea who Jasmine was at that time, literally yeah. many more years after that to figure out who I was as a person. Um, I definitely felt pressure. Um, you know, my parents got married pretty young. I feel like it was very normal for people to get married pretty young and, you know, stay together for the rest of their lives. So I felt that pressure. You know, my mom begging me to have grandchildren to this day. (laughs) (laughs) I know how that is. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just, uh, it was someone that was there and it was like, you know, within that, that mindset where, okay, I just need someone that that essentially wants me, you know what I mean? Like someone that's going to be there. There was no other baseline other than that. So the bar, I mean, my bar back then was so low. Tisha was very sad. You know, I just took anyone. It didn't, it didn't have to be anyone um, meaningful. It was just like, I needed to feel wanted as a, as a woman. Like it was so, you know, bare boned. Um, So I got married and figured out that that's totally not, (laughs) what a relationship needs to grow you actually need to find a person that is right for you so you know coming with those challenges and still trying to still having that mindset like okay well I need to do you know xyz to be this perfect housewife it was a lot of pressure and it was just like it wasn't it wasn't a real kind of relationship to where definitely not a real marriage in my opinion but yeah, no, it, it was so stressful. I just remember waking up with anxiety, like every morning. It was, it was, it was terrible. Now I'm not going to say the person that uh, I married, like I didn't, you know, like him or anything, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like that deep love that I feel like you should feel with your partner, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But like, just to have that pressure on you. And then I know that you were also kind of dealing with some other challenges on top of your anxiety throughout the marriage. Like I know there were some conflicts with your mother-in-law and then you were moving forward pretty quickly in your career and doing really, really well. And I assume that, you know, for the person you were married to at the time, it was probably challenging for them and probably caused some conflicts as well. Oh, yeah, because they wanted, you know, they wanted that housewife. They wanted the control. Um, So, yeah, I started progressing in my career pretty fast. I was doing very well for myself and learning a lot of things. I ended up making more money than him at some point of our relationship. And that was something that just really hit him hard um, in his confidence. So, which was like the total opposite of what I needed at the time, you know, I was getting more responsibilities and working, you know, later nights and um, I wasn't getting that support anymore from that person. And so it just got harder, you know, I would come home and then I would have a whole nother other things to do on top of, you know, coming home already from a stressful day. So it was really tough. And especially at the time, because he, um, had worked from home but for some reason he was in his mind he was a man so he didn't have to do you know womanly responsibilities so that that was really tough on me I just I didn't have that support system for years and it just got harder and harder on me 
so yeah he he wasn't he did he, I wouldn't say he didn't like the fact that I made money but he definitely didn't like that I made more he ended up spending a lot of my own money uh, in the end so it wasn't even like um because he wanted like that control financially too he just wanted control over everything <laughs> essentially oh, um, wow. yeah no it was it was really bad it was like it was professionally controlling for me and my finances but then like just friends in general like because he was already uh losing that self-confidence um like he it was very controlling in, in who I was talking to and who I would you know hang out with too um anytime I brought up my best friends like I could tell there was animosity with it my best friends from high school in West Springfield they're both male so there was just, you know, certain things, a little passive aggressive cues here and there. It was rough, but it was weird because at the time, you know, I mean, he was pressuring me to marry him. His friends around him were pressuring me to marry him. My family was kind of like, you know, you're already, you're already getting old. Give us grandchildren, you know. 21, so, you're getting old. <laughs> you're getting old. Uh, I'm already, now, now I'm 28 imagine what they what they think now <laughs> but you know it was just a lot of pressure at the time and 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 I didn't know what I was doing that honest if if I'm being honest with myself I didn't know what I was doing I thought I could make it work and wow I bit off way more than I could chew and I was not ready for it whatsoever barely knew myself at the time and it just it it was so many factors that it was gonna fail no matter what <laughs> But yeah, I just, I just regret making that decision because I feel like I deserve so much more um, than I was letting my, allowing myself to have. Man, it it honestly could have just been a very different path if I had known a little better, but hey, we live and learn. And um, throughout the whole thing, you know, going through the divorce uh, alone, essentially, that was a whole ordeal too. So I ended up having to go to therapy after that. It was uh, a little before COVID, like yeah. towards the end, I would say was the lockdown type situation. So we, I had made the decision to, to leave him. Um, my parents were literally on the way. This is the day that happened. They were on the way from Virginia to San Antonio. They're moving to San Antonio to be closer to me. And I'm in Austin. I make the decision, you know, it's time. Um, and he ends up, he ends up abandoning the house and me. Um, so it's just me in there. And he, he had some friends that had moved from Virginia to Texas in the same town. So he went to go to them and, you know, it was just me alone there. My parents had came. I remember my dad, he told me, he was like, that was, I had never seen you like that before. Like that was the first time he really saw me just like totally broken. And um it was really tough they ended up having you know they had to go close on their house they they were rolling with me for one night and then the the rest of the time you know I had to separate everything by myself I had to do everything by myself he wasn't there to help I felt very alone it was just like it was a really rough rough time and I had to find the real estate agent because I had to put the house up for sale I had to figure out how to do the whole divorce process by myself I had to figure out you know, how, how am I even going to fund it? (laughs) It was a lot, but, you know, ended up getting through it. Unfortunately, then, then COVID hit in the middle of it. 
So while I'm trying to get, you know, him to sign these papers, there's a ton, a ton of papers he needs to sign. And then the house, um, there was an offer pre-COVID and he wanted more. So he ended up turning it down. And it was like a really good offer. COVID came. And let me tell you, the, selling a house during a pandemic would not recommend. It, it's almost impossible. The, we had to wait an extra like five months before it even sold. So I, was, I wasn't even living at the house. I had gotten everything out. I was um, with my parents um, and still paying for a mortgage. It was so unfortunate. <laughs> um, and then uh, in the middle of COVID too, I had lost my job. I had gotten laid off in the middle of all this, in the middle of the COVID, the divorce, then I had gotten laid off. And it was just like, man, like life is really kicking my ass right now. Um, the house ended up selling, we, we ended up having to lose money because, you know, at that point it was just like, just get it out, get out of our hands. Um, we ended up selling the house. Um, I think a month later I had gotten a job pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty shortly after, and things were starting to turn up. It was like, um, very like weights were lifted off my shoulder. Now being, you know, having this title of divorcee, And, you know, that must have been like really, really hard for you. I mean, I could imagine that I would feel like kind of ashamed that I got married and got divorced so quickly. Um, But you mentioned that you saw therapy and that was really able to kind of help you work through this divorce, especially because you didn't really have too many people other than your parents to really like turn to emotionally. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, like I couldn't even turn to them because it was kind of like, shame for them too (laughs) it was very like how could you let this happen like this was your decision uh type of a deal and so you know again like it just I felt very alone in this and I ended up going to therapy um originally for that but it ended up opening you know a ton of facets in my life that I it was eye-opening for me yeah, I mean, I went in there saying like, you know, I just feel like I messed up. I messed up life. Like this is this is the death sentence. And I remember the one thing she told me was just like, well, hey, you know, like you're you're not the first person to go through this. You know, there's a ton of divorces that happen, and it wasn't necessarily you know anyone's fault. You just weren't meant for each other. <laughs> like it just it was not going to work out. You two just ended up picking each other for the wrong reasons, and it wasn't strong enough to uphold. And but she said like it's okay. Like that's fine. It's this, this is honest. It's not the worst thing that could happen to you regarding, you know, a relationship ending badly. You know, it could have been much worse, could have been like physically abusive on top of that, or, you know, something else could have happened. But, you know, just, just to hear someone say like, it's okay. It, and all you have to do is just kind of like move on from it, but without the shame, like you don't have to be ashamed that you're divorced. Like you, when you were younger, not that you're not still young, <laughs> when you were younger, you said like you would kind of overlook some of these like red flags and you almost had like these rosy glasses, if you will. How do you think the therapy really helped you work through that and learn that like, yeah, like these are red flags for a reason and you need to pay attention to them? 
Yeah, that's definitely where I, I got familiar with the term, you know, wearing rose, rose glasses, rose colored glasses, uh, which I 100% did f- throughout my whole life with anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. I learned that I was a people pleaser um, to, to the heart. So I would bend over backwards for nothing in return most of the time or for just like for anything I mean it was it was um I would put my uh, like the stress on myself for others just just to make sure they were happy um and then I learned you know like oh I can't make everyone happy so (laughs) that's what I ended up learning later on in life but for relationship wise having rose-colored glasses on it's very dangerous in my opinion yeah there were a ton of times where obviously I would go through things you know, today knowing that they're wrong, back then going through it just because I wanted to feel that likeness. I wanted to feel that affection. I wanted to know like, well, okay, you still like me though, right? Like it was, it was almost like pick me-ish, which is terrible. So I had to learn through that. Like, that's just a character flaw in myself that I have to like keep reminding myself, like, you know, it's okay. Like you can say no, like you don't have to feel bad about it. Um, but it just, it took many years to learn that. And so, yeah, that, that, that's definitely what I learned in therapy. Yeah. I thank you for sharing, because I think that a lot of people can find that very helpful. Um, surprisingly, probably people much, much older than both you and I, because I, I think that that's having like rose colored glasses is something that a lot of people struggle with the people pleasing part. A lot Mm -hmm. of people struggle with, um, even my husband just finally kind of realized that we actually start reading this book called positive intelligence. And there's like this new kind of quotient similar to EQ or IQ called PQ. And it really helps you identify like the saboteurs in your life that really hold you back as an adult, as a child, they were kind of necessary to help you survive. But now as an adult, they're more of a hindrance. And so people pleaser is one of those saboteurs, um, that he specifically struggles with. So, um, I'm just really, really glad that you did seek therapy and because I know that there's a lot of stigma around therapy even today. Um, and so I'm really glad that you kind of took that step for yourself and that it was so helpful for you to help you grow. Yeah, I know there is a ton of stigma with therapy culturally too. I just, I remember even talking to my dad about therapy, just like not even going to it just in general. And he was very like, yeah, no, you can't do that because once you go to therapy, like you're labeled as like, you're labeled as crazy, basically, like something is wrong with you at that point. And so I just remember, you know, thinking about therapy in that way for a long time, like, oh no, like therapy, like you're going to be, you know, labeled at that point. But it's so untrue. It's honestly one of the healthiest things you could do for yourself and for the people around you. And uh, I just think it's a responsible thing for people to go through um I don't think people should be afraid of therapy um I personally advocate for people to go to it even if you don't even think you need it like it's surprising how much actually opens when you open up yourself um so yeah no I loved it it was a great experience I I always tell people therapy is probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me yeah I'm glad it was so so positive for you and I definitely could not agree more even for those of us who have pretty um, you know, pretty healthy, happy lives. Now I, I have, I had a lot of stuff that I had to go through as a child. Um, and I, I actually keep telling myself that I'm going to talk to someone, um, 
but I, I have not done that yet. I actually just downloaded, there's this app that my work actually gives us called Ginger Support. And through there, you can connect to um, like coaches, um, like mental health coaches and also therapists. So I finally downloaded it. And I think I'm finally going to just reach out to someone because I think even now, like I feel okay, but I know that there's a lot of stuff from my childhood and my younger years that are probably still affecting me a little bit, or at least it would still be good for me to try to like, you know, put those things to bed in a way. Definitely. Um, I found something that helps me specifically. I searched for a woman and then I searched for a woman that was Latina because um, I felt like it would be more relatable for me and her to talk. And boy, I was right because I learned a lot (laughs) of things culturally that I went through as a kid and as an adult to where I I thought it was normal. I thought everyone had gone through it and it wasn't true. It was just... um, you know, something that most Hispanic households go through. Um, A lot of like the appearance upholding, um, even though I had thought that that was from the Mormon church, a lot of it was influenced too by culture. So yeah, there was just a lot, a lot of things other than the divorce too, that really, I mean, it helped me open my eyes uh, from my childhood that kind of helped me realize why I am the way I am today um, how I can improve upon it because you know there was a lot of just things that I had went through that caused a lot of like self-confidence issues within myself and I had to learn like no like you're you're really awesome like it, it, you don't have to listen to those things like those aren't those aren't like set in stone rules you know you don't have to um, necessarily upkeep yourself um, in this perfect image all the time um, or even ever, like you don't have to be someone that you're not. (laughs) And that was eye-opening to me. Going back to your childhood though, for a little bit, you starting at the age of 12 had a very long painful journey, dealing with two hormonal chronic conditions, one of which being endometriosis. What, what was that like for you? And kind of what were the first telling signs that you had such a serious condition? Yeah. So that was uh, yeah, big thing that happened in my life. It's still prevalent today. Um, I started so, okay. So I had, when I was 12, that's when kind of my body started changing. I had gotten my first period. Um, about 13, I started realizing how painful my periods were, but they were extreme. So I would bleed a lot. I would go through a whole box of, of pads for one period and then never failed. I would always have to bring a second pair of pants to school every day for that whole week. Um, it was just so much. And I thought it was totally normal. I was like, yeah, everyone has, you know, this heavy of a flow. There would be days where I'm literally like fetal position. I can't move uh, for like maybe one, two days. So, but I thought everyone had gone through this. Apparently that is not the case. Apparently most uh, what's considered a normal period isn't, it's painful, but it's not supposed to be like debilitating. So (laughs) I had to learn that later on in life. But at the time I was like, okay, this is totally normal. I just have to get used to it type of a thing. Um, Then I started experiencing um, different um, 
things like cystic acne, but like a lot of it. And I'm not sure if you've had a cystic acne before. It hurts very bad and it's very hard almost. Um, but yeah, I constantly had that. And then I started noticing my hair falling out. Um, so when I would take a shower, I would run through, you know, run my hands through my hair, put the shampoo in. And when I took my hand out, I mean, there'd be clumps of just hair in my hand. And that was every day. So it was a bit traumatizing because I could, there was no way for me to hide that part. You know, everyone has acne. So I wasn't too like worried about that. The hair thing, I couldn't like put a hat on or a bandana on because it was, we were in school. So that, that part, I, I don't even remember like wanting to look at pictures of me at that time. I don't even know if I have any anymore. I think I got rid of them. <laughs> so um, there was that. There was um, a weight gain too, very prevalent. Uh, I was definitely chunkier for sure in Kansas uh, when it when the symptoms were very high. Um, I was, all, apparently I learned on later in life that uh, PCOS and endometriosis can both give you depression and anxiety just as a symptom. So I was already stressed out with all the other factors happening around me at that time. And then on top of that, it's just like bound to happen anyway. So it, it was just a lot of that. Um, I ended up going to a doctor and telling him like, hey, these are all things that are happening. I don't think it's normal. And I think I was either 13 or 14 at the time. And he was like, well, you're a growing young lady. So your body is going to change. So it's probably just like your period or something. So that's, that was the explanation for a long time um, until I was about uh, 16. Um, I started feeling this awful pain randomly. It was much worse than like a period cramp. It was like, it would take me down immediately. I would fall to the floor and uh, I had no idea what it was. I went to the hospital a couple times. They would do uh, x-ray and they couldn't find anything. By the third time I went to the hospital, they had told me, uh, well, they, they actually told my parents that I was lying. Um, there's nothing there. We don't know what she's feeling. Um, here's some pain medicine again and just send me home. So um, we had seen an endocrinologist. Uh, she had told me I had PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, meaning I get cysts on my ovaries. Um, and then she just would give me experimental drugs, essentially, to try to combat the symptoms. So that's how they really try to find it. They would just do a symptom to symptom, different pills for everything. So I was forced to get on birth control. And then I was forced to get on another medicine called spironolactone, which is a blood pressure medication. But my blood pressure is completely normal. Um, so there was that. Then I had to get on another pill called metformin, which was supposed to help with the insulin resistance. Um, at some point later on, I ended up taking insulin, uh, but I'm not diabetic. I've never been diabetic. So there was just a lot of different things that they were throwing at me that I would have to take all throughout high school. And it would make me feel even worse at times. So at some point I ended up just kind of dropping a few of them. I think after the insulin, because I'm already terrified of needles, at least at the time I was, I'm a lot better about it now, especially after getting tattoos. But at the time I was terrified. I, I remember the first time I had to stick myself, I had a panic attack for like 20 minutes. 
and it's a baby needle. Like it's literally feels like nothing, <laughs> but I had to stick it in my stomach and it was just like, it was the whole thing was terrible. I just felt sick. And, um, I ended up seeing other doctors because a lot of the times the doctors would tell me, Oh, you just get on like a Mediterranean diet and lose some weight and then all your problems will be solved. Um, I ended up losing a lot of weight when I moved to Virginia. Um, and my problems did not get solved. So, <laughs> um, I just kept living life with all these pills and everything throughout senior year. Um, and then through when college had hit, um, I started noticing even more just like, you know, the pain during the periods, my period, um, started becoming completely erratical. Like there'd be times when I would have it for two months straight. And there'd be times when it would be gone for six months and it was just totally out of sync and I never knew what it was going to do. And then there was one year. So when I was about 23, I think is when I had my surgery, 24, um, it was a year, I just say I lost my life that year because it was, I don't even remember most of it. I was in agonizing pain that whole year. I couldn't think straight at all. Um, and it was just constant stress and constant depression. And I could barely walk, you know, 10 steps without feeling winded or without feeling my sciatica pain. And I had to sit down for it to go away just so I could walk another 10 steps. Like it was so uh, humiliating at the time because I just felt so weak and it was a lot of back pain. It was a lot of just physical pain at this time. And I was exhausted. I mean, it, and then I was so depressed. I didn't want to leave the bed. I, it was terrible. So I sought out some help because I was like, there's no way I can live like this another year. Absolutely not there was this one OBGYN that I saw and I was telling her about my issues and she told me that, you know, she could prescribe me pain medicine for the rest of my life. If I wanted to, she was going to give me Percocets just for life. That was her solution. Wow. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do that. The pain was so heavy that I had to take a Percocet for it to go away. So, and I already knew what it was like to do that, to, to just have a Percocet. And I, I didn't like the feeling of being on one. Like it made my head super fuzzy and cloudy. I, I couldn't think straight already. And that just made it worse. So I was like, there's no way you're just going to give me Percocets for the rest. Like I need an actual solution. <laughs> so I ended up having to switch again and switch again until I found someone that was willing to help. And finally there was a, um, endocrinologist, OBGYN surgeon. Um, he told me to come in and he had literally put pressure on my lower stomach because it got, it, it gets so inflamed. It's called endo belly. It gets inflamed so much um, because of the endometriosis growing. There's a lot of bloating there that when he pushed down I mean, I screamed like it hurt so bad. It was such a sensitive, traumatized area. Um, so he said, you know, we're going to get you into surgery next week. Get an MRI uh, this week and then let's let's come up with a game plan. And so I was like, OK, so I get my first MRI and I'm, I'm terrified of them now because it's like a small tunnel they put you in. <laughs> and I was, I didn't realize I was claustrophobic until then. <laughs> and so I got through it though. He was able to see everything. And so he told me that an x-ray 
or an x-ray or a um a scan um a belly scan wouldn't have been able to see it like you need an mri and so he told me that the the cyst pain i was feeling when i was like 15 i had cysts on top of my uterus um and it kept bursting over and over again and so he called it was like a complex cyst is what he called it because um after it, it, it exploded it would regrow on itself and like he could see all like the structural integrity in it like it was a very large cyst um and then he said on top of that this is when i learned i had endometriosis he said i also have endometriosis and it had grown so large that it was about to touch the lining of my stomach it had grabbed both of my ovaries and essentially created this angry ball it was no longer in like that nice t-shape it was just a big circle of of wrath and pain and so he he was like yeah you need to get surgery like there's no way you can live like this once it starts getting tall enough it'll like start grabbing at your organs like you have to get it burnt off every like you know five to ten years essentially is what i learned so i was just living life <laughs> with this and like combating it with useless pills at this point like there there was nothing that the, the pills I was taking could do to combat the endometriosis so yeah it was just it was so eye-opening like I think I saw 10 doctors total trying to figure out what was going on and this was over a span of like 10 years so it was a big big health journey for me um, we ended up doing the surgery and it's like a, like this robot going in with lasers and lasering it all off. Uh, they ended up having to take, I think like half of one of my ovaries because it was just like filled with, with cysts and it was already gone due to the endometriosis. And so, um, we ended up doing that, but man, I remember when I woke up from that surgery, like, like a brand new woman like it it was so crazy I didn't feel any of the pain I was feeling and he even told me he was like you're gonna feel totally different right now but you still need to actually recover like you just went through a massive surgery even though you feel amazing and I was like wow like this is incredible like I could hear my own thoughts again and I was like wow like this is crazy I can make sound decisions <laughs> So yeah, it was like, it was an amazing time for me after that surgery because I could finally just like do things again. Like uh, after I had recovered, I could walk normally again and I wouldn't feel as tired. I wasn't as extremely bloated anymore. Um, my anxiety had definitely lessened because at some point, you know, I was having panic attacks like every day, essentially over, I don't even know what. So it was just like a whole new lease on life for sure is what it felt like. I am so glad you moved to Virginia and found that doctor, but oh man, it sounds like such a terrible experience. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And for them to take 10, 12 years just to figure out what was going on with you, like we're not talking about 1920s, 30s, like we had the technology for them to find the issue, but it seems like you, there were just no doctors, especially in Kansas, that cared enough or had the knowledge to like really deep dive and figure out what the real issue was. Yeah, well, it wasn't just uh, just Kansas doctors, it was specifically military doctors because at the time I was, you know, Ooh. under military care as well. And um, a lot of the doctors I would see are male and you wouldn't necessarily get a choice to see a female. 
Um, and so, you know, I remember getting like an internal ultrasound at a very young age <laughs> by a male doctor. <laughs> like that was That's- a little traumatizing for me. I think I was like 13 and like, you know, I, it was, um, yeah. And then he couldn't find anything. You know, there was a lot of that. It was a lot of, we can't find anything because they're just doing ultrasounds, just like the belly scan. And uh, apparently from what I heard from the surgeon that, you know, that took care of me, like I needed to get an MRI. Someone had to tell me to get an MRI, uh, which I guess no one had, had thought of or cared for, but yeah, no, the whole time I just felt like, just like no one cared type of a thing. A lot of the, the answers I would get is you just need to lose weight. Um, and, and they just wouldn't like take the pain to heart. Cause I, I mean, it was very heavy pain and I just felt like no one, no one really heard me. That's really, really tough today though. Are you, are you completely pain-free? Yeah. So I have a totally different lifestyle today. Um, I do a lot of weightlifting uh me and my boyfriend do pretty much daily um and we also have a pretty good like eating habit pattern um not to say we don't enjoy we obviously we love food so we eat a lot (laughs) (laughs) but like you know life is a lot different uh for sure I still have to monitor my endometriosis pain so a lot of it is what you eat um but there'll be certain foods that'll give you indications that you can't eat them anymore. So I had to give up meat, red meat, um, uh, probably right after the surgery spell, like five years ago, I noticed that anytime I ate it, I would get that very specific endometriosis pain that I was feeling, you know, at my worst coffee. I can't drink coffee anymore. A lot of like heavy tomato based things I can't eat too much of, uh, but I do still enjoy pizza. I could never give that up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but there are like, you know, just certain foods that my I have to listen to my body and be very cautious of what I put in because, you know, if I do eat like a like a steak if I have more than a bite sometimes um you know I'll get really sick I'll have that pain I'll start throwing up it's like almost my body just rejects it now so you know that that's what I tell people when when they're like do you have any allergies I'm like just don't for the love of God don't give me beef (laughs) because I've had instances where I accidentally eat it and then I'm stuck in that scenario where I'm just like really sick and I'm out for like a day or two well, I'm sorry you can't have any steaks, um, but I'm so glad you are much better now than you were. Totally. I think about meat like so often, Tisha. I grew up on it. Like <laughs> yeah. we used to eat steak all the time, and not like and burgers, and like I can't have anything of the sort. Um, but it was funny because my boyfriend and I we went to a like a resort recently, and we went to a steakhouse. I was I was eating a, a pork chop. It was really good. And he had like this, like, I don't, this absurd amount, um, like the cost of the steak was insane. I was like, if I'm going to chance it, it's going to be on this steak. I was like, let me have your expensive steak. Let me have a piece of it. So he gave me like a sliver because he knows. And I tried it and I was like, oh my God, like, is this what beef like tastes like? It was like so crazy. I almost cried. I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> Thankfully, nothing happened to me that day. Like, I think I was just like a little bloated, but like nothing extreme happened. Good. But I was like, man, like, this is so crazy. Like, I just forgot, like, just like the taste of it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> 
Hey goat fans, I can't believe it, but we are already starting to prep for season two. So if you're interested in being a guest on Not Your Average Goat and are ready to share your story with the world, please reach out. You can submit a request at notyouraveragegoat.org forward slash contact. I bring everyone on this show because in some way or another, their journey has inspired me. And so I always love to know who or what in your life has been your biggest inspiration and why? With my creativity, design life and everything, I I give major props to my uncle. Um, He was someone that inspired me to become a designer. He was uh, designing in New York City he was doing like uh, big fashion magazines. I think at the time he was working with Calvin Klein, but I remember he showed me when I was like, I think five or six, like his uh, magazine spreads. And he was like, oh, look, I did the layout for this. Or like, I, I retouched this photo, you know? And then by the time I was 10, he was, you know, on Photoshop and I'm like, what's that? And so he, he taught me it and he actually got it for me. And uh, ever since then, I was I was playing around with it and really just solidified me wanting to do more with this creating. And so I always think him. I always tell everyone, like, I, I wouldn't be a designer if it wasn't for my uncle. I'm so glad you had an uncle like that. That's so yeah. awesome, <laughs> especially when your parents probably didn't want you to go into the art field. <laughs> he was always very like, you know, supportive of the, of the arts. And yeah. he, he had a daughter late in life. And, um, you know, I just seeing how he interacts with her and like her creativity and always pushing her to, you know, to push her limits with her creativeness. And like, you know, she's doing like these plays and she's doing like the star roles in her high school plays. And she's very into design too. And like loves talking about fonts. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Like, <laughs> So cool. The person you are today, I think it's just a huge testament to how like, tenacity and resiliency and just being willing, like open to growing, um, you know, can really do wonders for someone who has to deal with a lot of things growing up. So thank you so much for sharing. I hope that so many people feel inspired by your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Not Your Average Goat is produced and edited by yours truly, with music by Sergey Quadrado and Anton Blazov. All content is copyrighted and should not be recreated, reproduced, or reused without explicit consent. Please visit notyouraveragegoat.org forward slash contact for questions.